A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Siege of Jerusalem of 1099, Part 3. On the 27th of November, 1095, hundreds of spectators crowded into a field outside the city of Clermont in central France to listen to a speech by Pope Urban II. Of the five contemporary accounts, none are completely reliable in their detail. Since all are composed after 1099, they represent what Urban could have said in the light of subsequent events. Taken together though, they probably give a good impression of this historic event. The most popular account was that of a Benedictine monk named Robert, who was present on the day according to which Urban spoke these words. Quote, a race of Franks, raised from across the mountains, race chosen and beloved by God, as shines forth in every manner of your works, set apart from all nations by the situation of your country, as well as by your Catholic faith and the honour of the Holy Church. To you our discourse is addressed, and for you our exhortation is intended, we wish you to know what a grievous cause has led us to your country, what peril threatening you and all the faithful has brought us. From the confines of Jerusalem and the city of Constantinople, a horrible tale has gone forth and very frequently has been brought to our ears, namely that the race from the kingdom of the Persians, an accursed race, a race utterly alienated from God, a generation forsooth which has not directed its heart and has not entrusted its spirit to God, has invaded the lands of those Christians and has depopulated them by sword, pillage and fire. It has led away a part of the captives into its own country, and a part of it has destroyed by cruel tortures. It has either entirely destroyed the churches of God or appropriated them for the rights of its own religion." End quote. In this way continued the Pope, raising the crowd into a state of great agitation. Several times during the speech a cry went round, Deus vote, God wills it, and as soon as Urban finished, the first volunteer, Bishop Adama, stepped forth to pledge his participation. Adema was appointed papal legate, that is, Urban's official representative on the campaign, and therefore became its spiritual leader. He was quickly followed by many more volunteers. The next day, messengers arrived from Count Raymond of Toulouse, proclaiming his support for the cause. 
Urban speech had been a resounding success, and over the next seven months, he followed it up with an extended preaching tour around France that inspired yet more to join the cause. Raymond of Toulouse was the most powerful secular lord in southeastern France. Already in his fifties at the time of the sermon, Raymond was an exceptionally devout man and an old ally of the Pope. As the expedition's elder statesman, boasting far-reaching power and influence, he seemed the natural secular leader. However, as things turned out, there would be no clear leadership structure during the campaign. There would be several other individuals who would jostle for positions of leadership. Similarly, while the overarching aims of the crusade were clear enough, defending the Christians on the east, driving back the pagan Turks, and finally reaching Jerusalem, the precise military objectives were unclear. There was no specific talk, for example, of occupying the holy city. At least at first, the Emperor Byzantium, Alexios, the man whose request for military assistance had triggered the Crusades, was responsible for setting the strategic goals. But that would change. Most of the leaders came from the area of today's France. The King of France at this time, Philip I, held virtually no power outside a small area around Paris. Instead, counts and dukes enjoyed effective authority over their own region, as did Raymond, for example, in the county of Toulouse. The king's younger brother, Hugh, was an early joiner of the crusade. He apparently thought a lot of himself, and believed he was the rightful leader. According to Anna Komnenna, he wrote to Emperor Alexius, quote, Know, O king, that I am king of kings, and superior to all who are under the sky. You are now permitted to greet me on my arrival and to receive me with magnificence, as befits my nobility. End quote. But in the end, Hugh played a bit part in the campaign, and was not one of the greatest of its warriors. Another participant was Robert, Duke of Normandy, son of William the Conqueror, who is generally considered not to have inherited his father's strength of character. William's son-in-law, Count Stephen of Blois, also joined up, as did Count Robert of Flanders, son of the same Count Robert, who I described last week had earlier helped Alexius fight against the Turks and Pechenegs. The idea of providing military assistance to Byzantium was not therefore a novel concept to the younger Robert, there were two more important crusaders from northern Europe. Godfrey of Bouillon, the Duke of Lorraine, was another ruler of an important region who took up the call to arms in the service of God, as did Godfrey's brother, Baldwin. Pope Urban was on bad terms with the German emperor, so unlikely to gain support from him. But he did manage to recruit a pair of Norman leaders who had been living and fighting in southern Italy. Bohemond was the eldest son of Robert Guiscard, who, as described previously, had led an invasion into Byzantine-controlled Balkans in the 1080s. 
it may therefore appear strange for him to ally with Byzantium in his new campaign. Alexius did, albeit wearily, greet Bohemond when he arrived, and offered him a high position within the armies. The emperor had become used over the years to having to rely on allies who he knew he could not entirely rely on, because he had no alternative. It was evident that the young Norman was a very capable warrior, and his services, if directed appropriately, would be invaluable. The last individual crusader I will mention was a nephew of Bohemond named Tancred, who was also a very effective warrior. One notable absentee was Roger, Count of Sicily, who was shrewd enough to realise that a campaign against Muslims in the east would cause difficulties in his own territory, which was home to a sizable Muslim community at the time. The first crusaders to arrive in Constantinople were none of the above-mentioned nobles, but a motley crew of about 30,000 individuals with no exceptionally distinguished noble among them at all. They were mostly common men who had been inspired by Urban to the idea of an armed pilgrimage, but little or no experience in actual warfare. This ramshackle expedition is known to history as the People's Crusade, a prelude to the real First Crusade. Alexius must have been quite shocked at their arrival, having expected a more traditional force. Aware that the main contingent was on its way, he did his best to accommodate the needs of the group and help transport them all across the Bosporus into Asia. On their journey throughout Europe, the members of the People's Crusade had, inspired by an extreme religious fervour, carried out pogroms on their journey through Europe, in which they killed thousands of Jews. Against the serious military capabilities of the Turks, however, their religious enthusiasm was of little practical use. They were easily defeated by the army of the local Turkish leader, Kilij Aslan. The men were killed and the women and children taken into slavery. About 3,000 members of the People's Crusade escaped to an abandoned castle and were later rescued by a Byzantine relief army. They were the only survivors of this ill-fated expedition. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Meanwhile, the main crusader armies were making their way across Europe, each taking a different route. Alexius took steps to ensure easy passage across imperial territory, 
and issued them with special licenses to acquire provisions for markets which appeared to have been opened exclusively for the travellers. The Emperor also ordered generous amounts of money to be given to the Crusaders as they arrived in Constantinople. Estimates now suggest that as many as 80,000 may have taken part in the First Crusade. It therefore took an extraordinary level of organisation by the Empire to coordinate the arrival of so many men. At first, Bohemond and his men, as they travelled through the Byzantine Empire, regularly left the main road to Constantinople to wrestle livestock and other goods. Their behaviour sharply improved upon the arrival of an imperial guide who convinced Bohemond to order that property plundered by his men be restored to their rightful owners. There were also occasional skirmishes when other groups of crusaders clashed with locals in the Balkans, but each situation was dealt with swiftly. On the whole, the movement of so many armed men in numerous groups went remarkably smoothly and peacefully. As each leader arrived in Constantinople, they were personally greeted by Alexios, who showered his guests with presents to show his goodwill and generosity. In return, he insisted they each swore to him an oath of loyalty. Such oaths were a well-established and key element in the feudal structure known to his guests. For example, the alleged breaking of oath by Harold Godwinson was a key pretext for William the Conqueror's invasion of Britain three decades previous. The taking of oaths created a relationship with specific legal implications between a vassal on the one hand and a master on the other. Paying homage, the vassal committed to serve his lord by swearing an oath over the Bible or another suitable religious object. The most important nobles at first objected strongly that they, leaders in their own lands, should pay abeyance to any other individual at all. One by one, however, persuaded by the generous gifts, they gave in and made the oaths. Only Raymond of Toulouse refused, although he was eventually persuaded to make a compromise. He did not make full oath of allegiance, but instead swore that neither he nor those in his service would harm the emperor's life or deprive him of his possessions. Alexius's willingness to compromise revealed his primary concern. With a large armed force camped outside his city walls, he required assurance that his life and position was not under threat. Bohemond also agreed only to make a modified oath. He agreed to give back to Alexius all territory recovered, specifically any within 15 days' journey from Antioch. The Norman would then be free to keep for himself all lands further south and east beyond this area. Bohemond's intentions were therefore clear. His aim was to carve out his own region of control. Alexius accepted the deal, seeing the potential advantage of a strong buffer zone between the empire and his main Muslim adversaries. Other leaders, such as Godfrey of Budion, agreed to hand over to the empire 
all towns, lands or forts that they captured. By spring 1097, the First Crusade was going well. Morale was high and the various parties had come to agreements with the Emperor. The first military stage of the military was about to commence. Anna Komnenna writes that her father, Alexius, would have liked to have personally accompanied the expedition, but decided instead to remain in Constantinople, concerned about a revolt breaking out in his absence. He did, however, provide a unit of troops, led by his old friend Tetikios, a veteran soldier born of half-Arab, half-Greek parentage. The combined army set out for their first target, Nicaea, which they reached in May. Earlier, Kilij Arslan had brazenly declared the town his capital. As soon as camp was set outside the city walls, the westerners tried to take the town by storm. Although very enthusiastic, the westerners' initial efforts made little impression. The Byzantines, instead, believed the only way to capture Nicaea was through a lengthy siege, since the town was well protected by natural terrain, including a lake on its western side, as well as its imposing walls. But the Crusaders persisted, despite early casualties. Siege warfare was an area where Western European technology had evolved rapidly in the 11th century. The Normans of southern Italy in particular had mastered the art of attacking heavily fortified settlements and storming them, instead of relying on drawn-out sieges. Kilij Arslan, after his easy victory over the People's Crusade, expected little of this latest invasion. He sent a small detachment of Turks to relieve the garrison, but they were defeated. The heads of the unfortunate men were fixed to spears and paraded to the town's onlooking inhabitants. This type of barbarous psychological warfare was common in medieval sieges, and certainly not only by the Christians. In the coming weeks, the Nicene Turks retaliated. With iron hooks attached to ropes, they hauled up any enemy corpses left near the walls after skirmishes, and hung them from the walls to rot. The Crusaders established a close blockade, but unable to sever westward lines of communication via the lake, they actively attacked the city walls. Since early attempts to storm the city with scaling ladders failed, efforts centred upon creating a physical breach in the walls. They used light bombardments to harass the Turks, while under cover they attempted to undermine Nicaea's walls by hand. By mid-June, however, no significant progress had been made. The Byzantine troops appeared to have been less actively engaged in the assaults, but at this point they made an important contribution. Tatakios transported a small fleet of Greek ships 20 miles inland to the lake by Nicaea. At dawn on the 18th of June, this flotilla sailed towards Nicaea's western walls, trumpets and drums blaring, as the Westerners launched a coordinated land-based assault. Within hours, the Turkish garrison had sued for peace and the town was captured. There were some initial complaints about the lack of plunder, 
but these were soon silenced by rewards of cash from Constantinople. Later Western Chronicles played up the degree of tension between the Byzantines and the Crusaders, but a letter sent back home from Stephen of Blois at this point clearly shows that there was still an atmosphere of friendship and trust. The victory had shown what could be achieved by cooperation between the Crusaders and the Byzantines. The French and the Normans were on the whole highly effective warriors who benefited from military technology which had advanced significantly in Western Europe over the 11th century. In particular, they enjoyed superior cavalry, armour and siege weapons, as well as good battle tactics and a culture of bravery. The Byzantines, for their part, provided invaluable local intelligence. They knew the terrain and understood better the habits and tactics of their enemy. They told the Westerners, for example, how best to draw up a battle line, how to lay ambushes and advise not to pursue far when the enemy ran in flight. They also counselled the Crusader leadership to temper blunt aggression towards Islam with an element of pragmatic diplomacy. From this they persuaded the Crusaders to dispatch envoys by ship to the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt to discuss a potential treaty. This way they could best exploit Muslim political and religious disunity. The main potential weakness of the crusading army was a lack of leadership, given its composite nature. They also faced a communication barrier due to the mixture of languages spoken. Despite these challenges, the various groups retained a reasonable level of unity, with any major decision made by a council of leading Frankish princes. Because of its large size, the force could not realistically move forward as a single army. So at the end of June, a contingent of Bohemond's southern Italian Normans and Robert of Normandy's army set off ahead of the rest with plans to rendezvous at Doraleum, an abandoned Byzantine military camp. However, the Turkish leader, Kilij Arslan, had other ideas. He amassed a full-strength army, hoping to ambush the Crusaders and avenge the loss of Nicaea. On the morning of the 1st of July, he attacked Bermond and Robert in an area of open ground at the junction of two valleys near Doraleum. With a throng of lightly armed but agile Turkish horsemen, he hoped to encircle the enemy and shatter their formation with an unceasing hail of missiles. The Norman forces were initially shocked by the sudden assault, but Bowman and Robert were able to ready their troops and set up a makeshift camp beside a marsh. Instead of a chaotic retreat, they held their ground with a defensive formation while waiting for reinforcements. They stubbornly held out for five hours in time for the main crusading force to arrive and Kilij Aslan was forced to retreat. The main victor in terms of prestige was Bohemond, who impressed greatly with his tactics and his ability to maintain discipline. Casualties were high on both sides and each side had impressed the other. The crusaders admired the Turks get on horseback and the use of the bow. On the other side, the Turks 
would now show more respect and caution for the invading army and avoid head-on confrontation. Many thanks to listener Robbie for his generous contribution to the podcast. You too can make a donation at the podcast's blog, www.historyeurope.net. There I also paste the podcasts and other supplementary information, such as a bibliography. If you like this podcast, please give it a like on Facebook or write a review on iTunes. I enjoy receiving your feedback by whichever means. It means a lot to know people out there are enjoying the show. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please join me next time for the next part of the First Crusade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.